Good morning. How's everybody doing? You guys happy to be here? You guys look beautiful today? I hope you've been enjoying this little change of pace, having like Dave Ramsey and Pastor John and me filling in for Bob. Is anybody enjoying that? Um, I- I'm enjoying it. You know, most of you only hear me sing, um, but believe it or not, I preach every single week. Did anybody know that? Somebody... I preach I preach every week at our youth group. It's called Liquid. Um, we're actually in the middle of a hiatus right now, um, but on August 19th, we're kicking off Liquid in a brand new location, brand new time. We're starting right at 7.30, and so I want to invite you guys, if you know a teenager, if you are a teenager, if your sister has a teenager, if you're an uncle, aunt, grandma, whatever it is that you are, and you know a teenager, you have a teenager in your life, middle school, high school, bring them on August 19th to Miami Lakes Middle School for our youth group kickoff. Talking about youth group, uh, I love going on trips with youth. I take them to Disney, to Rock, uh, Rock the Universe, Universal Studios. And, and this year, actually, um, we spent a week in uh, His House Children's Home. I don't know if you guys know anything about His House Children's Home. Um, there's actually a, a, a pretty big group today from His House here. I don't know, over 20 people here. And so, welcome. Uh, and so, what, what we did, what we did this... Uh, this uh, summer, instead of going to Daytona Beach and all the places that we go for camp, we went there because we felt that we wanted to give back. And, and I think we did that. But believe it or not, God blessed our lives so much. My entire team, my youth that were there, I mean, we were so blessed by God just by saying, God, you know what? Here's my life. Here is who I am, what I can do, my resources. I give them to you. Use me. And it was incredible. Incredible to see how God just has transformed all of our lives. We'll never be the same. And uh, let me tell you something about that week. It was about over about a hundred of us everywhere we went. We ate, we skated, we went to the beach, we went to parks, we went bowling. And you can imagine as like the youth pastor uh, overseeing this thing. I mean, I was stressed out. Believe it or not, man, I was like scared sometimes. And all week I was saying, you know what, I'm having a great time, but I can't wait to go home. Okay, <laughs> I can't wait to go home. And here's the thing. It ended, right? And I came home to my one-year-old and my two-year-old. And then I was thinking as they were driving me crazy, man, I really miss camp, you know. <laughs> and here's the thing, uh, my wife and I, um, every once in a while, we need a break from the kids. We love them with all our hearts, but every once in a while we, we uh, want to go out on a date or something. And so we grab the kids, we drop them off at Abuela's house. And, uh, and sometimes, too, we actually, uh, we want to get away for more than just one night. We need like a couple, like 48 hours, 72 hours to just... Go out and spend time together. It's very healthy. If you're a married couple, get away with your spouse and spend time with them. Because uh, if not, you know, someone else will and you don't want that. And so here's the thing. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, I decided to, uh, to drop off the kids at, at Abuela's house and, and we got away. We went to the Keys for a couple of days and we fished. We ate great food. We had a great time. But what I remember the most about this trip was actually a snorkeling trip that we went on. Has anybody ever been snorkeling before? Cool. And so I went snorkeling and, um, with my wife, and, and we were snorkeling actually in this reef, and we're swimming back to the boat. It was a private boat. See, I've gone snorkeling in these big catamarans. You think you're going to have a great time with like 150 people snorkeling at a reef, and all you see is like someone's butt or their fin in your face. I mean, it's, it's a pain. And so we actually charted a private uh, catamaran, little boat, and, and we went out, 19-footer. We went out to all these private... We were able to spend more time at the reef. We had a great time. One of the times we're swimming back to the boat, I feel like this humongous thing next to me. I mean, huge. My wife was on this side, so it wasn't her. It was something over here, right? And, and I, I'm kind of scared to look. I'm like, what the heck is that, you know? And I, you know what it was? Anybody guess? Not a shark. 
It was a huge sea turtle. I mean, humongous sea turtle, like right next to me. I was like, whoa. And then I turned around. I tried to chase it. And I don't know what he thought I was, but, um, and, and it disappeared. But it was amazing for me to see, like, like God's creation, this humongous, massive, heavy thing, just like dancing underwater. It was beautiful. However, you may think that was my most memorable moment in my trip, but I had this awkward moment with the captain and his wife. All right? Um, it's not what you think. And so, and so uh, here's the thing. I'm the type of guy that if I'm with you, I want to know everything there is to know about you. So if you want to be my friend, think about it twice, okay? And so I'm in, I'm in the boat with uh, this captain and his wife, and, and I'm asking him all kinds of questions. You know, how long have you been doing this? Two years. I'm thinking, two years? Does he really know what he's doing? You know, and then uh, what did you do before? And I start asking all these questions. I find out he's from Canada. I tell him, oh, I hear they have great maple syrup in Canada and all this stuff. And then check this out. He turns the tables on me and starts asking me questions. And here's the thing. As much as I like to know about people and ask people questions, when they start asking me questions, I get a little nervous. Because here's the thing is that the first thing that they ask me, this stranger, the first thing every stranger asks me when they get to know me is this, what do you do? All right, and this is what I do. Look at me. Um, and, and here's the thing. If I ask my two-year-old son what, like, a tiger does, you know, he's like, rawr. I'm like, you know, que lo hace el elefante? He's like, Pfft. I'm like, what, what, what does baby Joshy do? He's one-year-old. I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And he's like, wah, wah. I go, what does mommy do? And he goes, wah, wah, you know. But when somebody asks me, what do you do? They want to know what I do for a living, what I do for work. And if you ever want to kill a conversation, just tell someone you're a pastor. Okay? Just tell, look, hey, girls, if some guy's coming on to you, whatever, you don't want to talk to say, hey, you know, I'm a pastor. That'll, that'll kill the conversation. Okay? And so um, I'm talking to this guy, and, and I don't have a problem with lying. I'm not a liar. But every time someone asks me what I do, I, I, I want to lie. I want to say I'm an astronaut or a firefighter. You know, I say, so I stutter. And my wife looks at me. She has a trip every time someone asks me what I do. For, I'm like, uh, 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 I'm, a, I'm a pastor, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, and the guy, like, looks at me weird. And all of a sudden, like, you know, all the cliches, like, all the bad reps, like, all the pastors that have been on TV and have done bad stuff and all the churches that have done bad stuff, all of a sudden, it's my fault. You know, and they're looking at me weird. You know, and, and the, the reason is, is that there's a bunch of weirdos out there. There's a bunch of pastors and people that claim to be pastors that, that are giving people like me, that are trying to do something good and, and, you know, trying to serve people a bad name. And you see, um, immediately people think I'm religious. And, and I'm not religious. I actually, I hate that word. I, I hate the word religion. I, that's not who I am. You know, I, I have a relationship with God. That, that's, that's my life. That's my story. And, you know, if you tell someone pretty much, that, that you meet for the first time, they, they think you're weird too. And so, however, but if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian in this room, if you claim to be a Christian and you've told someone, hey, I'm a Christian, you've experienced that. You've experienced like people looking at you weird, people laughing. You know, that's usually the first response that I get. You know, I tell someone I'm a pastor and they're like, <coughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or if, that, if, that, if that's like derogatory or what. But here's the thing, if you're a Christian, you've experienced that. You've probably experienced that at work, in your family. All of a sudden, you start coming to church, and now your family doesn't invite you to parties, or they, they're like, oh, you can't go here because you're a Christian. And, you know, they, they mock us. Or maybe you've been the mocker. You've been the one that makes fun of Christians and, and makes fun of your friends or someone that you know or a parent or something that says that they're Christian. And, and here's the thing. The reason that people are like that is because people have messed up our reputation. People have gotten something that is awesome, something that is amazing, something that Jesus came to, to establish here on earth that is beautiful and have stepped all over it and have destroyed it and have ruined it. 
have ruined something that should be good and that is good and has made it to look like something bad. And you know what? That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. Today in the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in Revelation chapter 17, we're in the series of messages that we're calling It's the End of the World as We Know It. And we're going to be looking at, at this part of the Bible where, where that's exactly what's happening. Something that's good, something that's amazing has been distorted and now is being used by the Antichrist. And so if you would uh, please uh, open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. And it reads like this. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and talked to me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with her wine of fornication. This is someone who has power over the nations. The waters is the people. Has power over all the nations and has uh, committed adultery with kings. I mean, she doesn't literally committed this fornication with the kings, but she has people under her control. And it says, And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs in Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. If you stop there and give me your attention, let me set the stage for you right now. Everything that is happening right here, everything that is happening that we're reading about is happening after the rapture of the church. If you pull out your outline, it's this little beige uh, thing that you got in that bag. And if you pull, there's a pen in there. So if I didn't bring a pen, we, we provided a pen. The first fill in your outline is that the rapture of the church happens in Revelation 4 and 5. And so everyone who believes in Jesus and has given their life to him, Everyone that believes that you're saved by the grace of God and not by works will be with God. So that means every Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Catholic, Pentecostal, non-denominational person that believes in God, has given their life for God and lives for God, will not take part in what's going on here. Would not take part in this part of the prophecy in the book of Revelation. All, everyone will be gone from the earth. See, what we're seeing here is God dealing with a religious system. And like I told you in the beginning, I don't like the word religion. When I share my faith with someone, usually what people say is, I'm not religious. And I say, great, I'm not religious either. I don't like religion because the very nature of the word, the definition of the word religion means to bind, to hold down. That's what the word religion means, to bind. And so every time, you know what, that every time the word religion is quoted in the Bible, in, 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 the, in the Bible it's quoted in a negative connotation except one time. But every single time the word religion is used in the Bible, it's in a negative way except once. See, because the image that people have of religion is an image of obligation, an image of rituals, an image of rules. And in this passage, God is dealing with the religious system of the tribulation. Mystery Babylon, which is a religious system that is actually in place today and will continue on and through the time of the tribulation. Here we see God judging this false religious system. But to understand it, to understand Mystery Babylon, we have to understand the Mystery Babylonian religion. And so I want to point you to the main character in this part of the scripture. Is this woman that's riding the beast. And the beast we know is the Antichrist. And this is no ordinary woman. 
The Bible says that on her forehead, something's written. Check out what's written on her forehead. It says, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. I don't know about you, but she's got to be like a Klingon or something to have that entire thing written on her forehead. Okay, but let me explain to you what, what Babylon is and what this mystery religion of Babylon is. We need to understand that to understand what is going on here in Revelation 17. See, the story of the Bible could easily be called a tale of two cities. We can borrow that title from Charles Dickens. Because over and over again, from cover to cover, there's two cities that keep popping up. The first one, it's a filling in your outline, Jerusalem. The city of God, mentioned over 800 times. The other one is Babylon. The city of rebellion, mentioned about 300 times in the Bible. You see, and Babylon was founded by this dude named Nimrod. See, I love that name. I, when I was growing up, I would call people that I didn't like Nimrod. You know, you're such a Nimrod, you know. And so this guy Nimrod, he was a great grandson of Noah. He, he founds, he's the founder of, uh, of Babylon. And, and check this out. It, it says this in Genesis 10, 8 through 10. It says, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a ruler. He was a leader. People were following this guy. He was a mighty hunter before God. And so before the Lord, and so you think this guy was hunting for God. No, he wasn't hunting for God. He was hunting against God. So if you believed that you were a Christian, this guy would hunt you down and kill you and, and get rid of you. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He, he made his name. He started his reign and, and, and all his messed upness in Babel. And the word Babel actually means this. It, it means gateway to God. And so what Nimrod and his people were trying to do was make their own road to God, their own gateway to God. Don't we meet people like that all the time? You tell them you're a Christian, you say, I'm a Christian, de mi manera. I'm a Christian my way. I do things my way. God and me, we have an understanding. And that's exactly what Nimrod and his people were doing, this Nimrod. Okay? And the city of Babylon was actually centered around this building. It's called a ziggurat. I brought a picture of a ziggurat. This is right now, current day, in, it's in Iraq, in, in the ancient city of Ur which is not too far from Babylon. And, and so they built this structure like this. It's actually even higher. You could tell it's been destroyed towards the top. They built this humongous building. It's an astrological building. It wasn't a stairway to heaven or an elevator to heaven. They built this building as high as they can because they wanted to see the stars. And so they would do these rituals on top of this building and the sorcery and stuff to tell people their future and tell people all this good luck stuff and things. And so that's what was going on on the top of this building, and we all know that to be astrology. You know, what the Mercado, the Chinese thing that you see when you go to eat Chinese food and stuff, and, and you know, Clio and the one eight nine hundred numbers and stuff. And that's pretty much what was going on there in this, in this city of Babel. Babylon is actually located in modern-day Iraq. We all know where Iraq is. There's a war going on there. They're actually cleaning house there now and moving over to Afghanistan. So, um, but, yeah, we all know where Iraq is. It's 50 miles south of Baghdad. Now let me tell you something. Ancient lore, okay, the, the history of the Babylonians say that Nimrod, the founder of Babylon, marries this woman named Semiramis, all right? And, and, and after he marries her, he actually dies. And she gets so sad that for 40 days, she fasts. She doesn't eat or drink anything. She fasts because she's sad and she's upset. And, and here's what happens at the end of these 40 days. We're talking thousands of years ago. At the end of 40 days, all right, she, um, she claims that the spirit of Nimrod somehow made her pregnant. And she becomes pregnant with this child. And she actually gives birth to this child. And his name is Tammuz. So in honor of the birth of this child that she claims to be the reincarnated Nimrod, what she does is she gets an egg. And she paints it with gold. Let me tell you something about 
uh, Semiramis, her, her name in Canaan is Ashtaroth, or Ishtar, or Easter. Okay, and so she paints an egg, and then everyone that lives in that region begins to paint eggs in honor of this so-called, you know, savior that has been born from the dead Nimrod, the reincarnated Nimrod. And then also, when this uh, Tammuz is, is, dies, her son dies around the age of 30, everyone is super sad, and what they do is that they get this big log, this log of the sun, or this Yule log, and they burn it for three days. And here's the thing, they say he dies around December 22nd. And so they burn this Yule log for, for um, three days. And then on the third day, all right, December 25th, they say that Tammuz has come back to life. And so what they do in place of this huge log that had been burning for three days, that now is ashes, they get this evergreen tree and they put it in place of that. And they decorate this evergreen tree with gold and, and silver. You could actually read about this in, in Jeremiah 10. It talks about this evergreen tree that people worship. And you could read about the worship of Tammuz in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 7 through 14. And it's right here in Babylon where we see the introduction of this mystery of the mother and the child form of idolatry. This is older than anything else that is known to man. This false idolatrous mystery Babylonian religion spreads all over the world and, and to every culture. You see, in Canaan, like I told you, Semiramis is Ashtaroth, and her child is Baal. We all know about Baal, you know, the prophets of Baal and Elijah and all that stuff that happened with them and the children of Israel, even God getting mad at them for the worship of Baal. In Rome, she's known as Venus. So Venus is not women, the, that just a shaver that you use in the bathroom. is actually a, a, a type of Semiramis, okay? While Tammuz is Cupid, in Greece, there's Eros and Aphrodite. In Egypt, is Isis and Horus. In virtually every culture around the world, there's this story of a mother, the queen of heaven. That's the title she gives herself, the queen of heaven. In, in Jeremiah 44, God is so mad at, at the children of Israel because they have begun to worship the queen of heaven. And her miracle baby, this story is so close. It's so close to the gospel that, that for some of us, we feel like, man, what's going on there? You're kind of confused. I mean, when, I, when I'm, I was studying for this message, I got a headache studying for this message because our faith gets violated. Our faith gets tested. And let me tell you what's happening here. I actually brought a little illustration. Um, you guys see this cake, right? Those of you who don't see it, it's a chocolate cake, all right? And, um, and here's what's happening here. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, we went to Canada. And that's why I knew the maple syrup was good because I'd been there, all right? And so, um, and so we went to Canada and with my senior class, and, and every group of people has this one person that's always broke, right? And they always want to eat your food, all right? You go to a restaurant, you're sitting down eating your food, and they're just sitting there like, like, goloseándose, like looking at, you know, and they're like drooling and stuff, and it's like, you can't enjoy your food when you got like, you know, un sapo, like somebody there just sitting like, like looking at you, you know what I mean? And it's like, and so you stop to breathe, and he's like, are you going to eat that? You know? And man, we were like two weeks in Canada, and it's like every time we'd stop to breathe or to laugh or to say, are you going to eat that? And so, man, by like the fifth day, we're like, bro, this guy is driving us nuts. And, you know, when you put a group of guys together, man, forget about it, especially seniors in high school in a foreign country, okay? Check this out. And so um, in the hotel that we were staying, we are staying at the Le Chateau de Frontenac. It's like a beautiful uh, uh, hotel. You could Google it. And they have this awesome deli. And what we did is we bought this delicious cake. 
this chocolate cake, you know, delicious looking chocolate cake. And what we did is that we got chocolate x lax all right? And we filled a piece of cake full of x lax I mean full, like two boxes worth of chocolate x lax We even like decorated the top of it with like the pieces of x lax okay? And, and we were done eating and here it comes, are you done with that? You guys going to eat that? Like we knew it was going to happen. This beautiful looking piece of cake that I'm sure some French-Canadian woman, you know, slaved over. And, you know, this is like a family recipe handed down, you know, through the years. You know, we destroyed it. We put x into it. And let me tell you, man, this kid ate it. And he was like, man, you guys are so nice. And, and we're like, oh, yeah, you know. And then it's time to go out. We're going to go out, hit the town, you know, with the guy. All of a sudden, we open the door. I was like, oh. Like, he's like, oh, you know. And you can hear his, like, all that stuff going on. And man, this kid, you could hear him crying in the bathroom as he was taking, you know what, and, uh, and, and it was horrible. And you know what? That's exactly what Satan is doing here. He's deceiving the world. You know, he knows better than anyone else. He knows the story. God told him in the book of Genesis, the proto-evangelicum, what was going to take place. God said this in Genesis 3.15, And I will put an enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Satan knew that God was going to crush him. God promised. That's a, the gospel in the beginning of our Bible, in the book of Genesis, third chapter, God telling Satan, you know what? You may think you won and you messed up my plan, but I am going to crush you. And the seed of a woman is going to crush your head. And so, you know, the flood happens and Satan sees that God is mad at what's going on in the world, that the sin and the depravity of the world, and Satan is, i got to get my plan into place. And that is where this mystery Babylonian religion begins its inroads into every single culture, every single religion. I mean, the Hindu religion has it. Every religion has this mystery mom, queen of the heaven with this infant child that people worship. And see, let me tell you something about this adulterous religion that originated in Babylon. Babylon grew. I mean, this empire was conquering every single empire that was around it, every city that was around it. It had huge fortified walls. I mean, it was the envy of everyone. And up until the time of Daniel... The prophet Daniel, in the book of Daniel, this, this, this empire was growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the Medes and the Persians came, and they overthrew the Babylonians and conquered Babylon. And so Babylon is no longer. However, this religion, this mystery Babylonian religion is still in existence. The priest and their traditions, their eggs and their evergreen trees and their yule log. Okay, every single thing. These guys lit candles perpetually. Let me tell you something about the way they dressed. They had pointy hats and wore red cloaks, okay? The people that came and worshipped this mother God and this infant child were blessed with holy water. And so what their leader did, actually their leaders was known as the Pontifus Maximus, the keeper of the keys. When the empire of Rome was destroyed, he's like, we got to get out of here. He's like, where's the money at, pretty much? And they moved to Pergamum because that was a city of wealth. It was a port city. There was a lot of money there. And so they moved this Babylonian mystery, harlot, Babylonian religion over to Pergamum. And there it, it flourished. I mean, because the people in Pergamum, I talked to you guys about Pergamum a couple months ago. 
and how Pergamum was a city that was called the throne of the devil. This is where Satan sat down. And that's where this religion moved, right there. And so, however, in, in 133 B.C., Pergamum is given to the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire is beginning to take control of all the cities. I mean, we've studied stuff like this in school. And then the Pontifus Maximus, this, this director, this leader of this false Babylonian religion, is invited to move his headquarters, to, to become a resident of Rome. You see, they're delighted to have such a powerful leader, a powerful religious leader that has so much influence to move to their city, to their town, because they don't want any problems with this religious guy, with this following. And so he moves to Rome. And let me tell you something. Now this mystery Babylonian mother of harlots, this cult, goes from Babylon to Pergamum to Rome. And now it flourishes for 400 years. This religion grows. We're talking about 133 before Christ, B.C. This thing flourishes for 400 years up until 313, 314 that Constantine, we've heard of Constantine, comes into the picture. Constantine is this guy that wanted to, to be in charge in Rome. And he says that he's going out one night and he sees this cross burning in the sky. And it says, under this sign, you will conquer. Okay, and what he does is that he uses the sign of the cross. Supposedly, people say it was a conversion. He becomes a Christian. Other people think that he says he was a Christian to get the moral majority to follow him. Um, I don't know if politicians still do that. But um, that's, that's what he did. And he actually takes control. Takes control of Rome and, and makes Christianity an acceptable religion. Right up until that point. It, make, it be, makes it acceptable. And then the, the state religion. And so now the religion of Rome is Christianity. Right up until that time, Christians were murdered. Christians were ripped apart. Christians were thrown in the Colosseum. Let me tell you something. I've been to the Colosseum. It's beautiful. But hey, it wasn't a beautiful place. This is where Christians were devoured by animals. Christians were thrown into boiling pots of oil. The bodies of Christians, Christians alive, okay, breathing like you and me, were, were carried to the castle to where Caesar lived, to the real Caesar's palace, and lit on fire as candles before Caesar. And now... Christians are accepted. Not only are they accepted, but now they are part of the state religion. And so in the middle of this, this flourishing now of Christianity, the uh, Pontifus Maximus comes to Constantine and is like, Hey, dude, what's going on? What about us? What about our religion? What about our beliefs? What about our eggs and our trees and our holy water and our candles and our pointy hats and our, our red cloaks and our cult and our tradition? And, and, and Constantine's like, Hey, man. It's, it's Christianity and however Constantine... And he's like, hey, if you don't accept us, we're going we're gonna to cause a rebellion. And Constantine is advised by his advisors to accept this mystery Babylonian religion, to accept these leaders, these priests, these, this Pontifus Maximus. And you know what happens when he accepts them? What happens is over a series of years, those things, those practices were brought into the church. And now the Pontifus Maximus, the keeper of the keys, goes by another name. He goes by Pope. And I talked to you, you know, right before uh, we started this. You know, and, and I've been talking about this a lot, but, and there's so many things that I, that I really want to share with you guys. But what I want to do as of right now is I want to point you to two books that you can actually pick up on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. There's this book called The Two Babylons, or another book uh, by Dave Hunt called A Woman That Rides the Beast. If, if, if this has intrigued you, if you're thinking like, man, this has even challenged some of the stuff that, that I was brought up believing or even stuff that I believe now, um, you can feel free to talk to me after the service or just pick up these books 
and, and get a little more knowledge into what this mystery Babylonian religion is. But I'm sure that after listening to everything I've had to say, the one thing in most of your minds is this, is like religion is messed up. You know, people have really messed it up really bad. There's something wrong. There's something phony. There's something screwed up with religion. There's something that's not right. What is up with this? What is going on? And I want to remind you before, before I continue, is that everything that I just talked about, you know, this Revelation chapter 17, the Antichrist using this, this woman, this harlot, this all happens after the rapture of the church. So I want to reiterate that if you're a Christian, or if there are Christians in the time that the rapture happens, okay, regardless of what church you go to, if you believe in God, you will not be a part of this. Regardless of what religion you are, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you won't be a part of this. What's left behind is the system that is led by men who are doing things for power, men that are doing things for fame, men that are doing this for fortune. I want you to look closely, and, and, and it's not just me saying this, it's not just one church. It's many churches, it's many false religions that will be united as one. Look closely, verse 5, it says, Mother of harlots, with an S, it's plural, it's not the mother harlot or the harlot mother. No, it's mother of harlots, that means it's a lot of churches, it's, it's a lot of religious systems that in the end, the corrupt will still be here in the time of the tribulation and the beast will take advantage of that to propagate his message and his false religion and i'm sure some of you are thinking you know what man why why do you keep saying rome you know why do you keep you know pointing us to rome and why rome and, and i want to i want to just read to you what revelation 17 says it says here is the mind which has wisdom the seven heads are seven mountains or hills on which the woman sits and what i did was um that the, the city of seven hills is known as rome i mean you know the big apple is new york the city of seven hills is Rome. And so she's sitting on Rome. And what I did was I, I Googled yesterday, City of the Seven Hills. And not that the Google is like, you know, whatever, but, but check this out. Seven Hills of Rome, Wikipedia, Free Encyclopedia, Rome, City of Seven Hills. The, I mean, over and over again in the search, if you look up City of Seven Hills, it's, it's Rome. It's obviously Rome. And we're focusing on Rome, you know what? Because that's where the money is. That's where the structures are, where the cathedrals are, where the goods are, where the gems are, where the gold is, where the marble is. You know where all the marble that was on the Colosseum is? is all in all the cathedrals, all the gold and conquest that have gone on, all this stuff. That when the true Christians are gone, the corrupt will stay and the Antichrist will take advantage of that. You see, if we look at, at chapter 17 when it describes a woman, check out how it describes. It says... The woman is arrayed in purple, a color of royalty, and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. This, she's not dressed with a sexy dress and, and uh, fishnet stockings, okay? She is dressed like a queen. She is dressed with money and power and authority. And so all these symbols, what, what it goes to show us is this Klingon-looking woman all right, is everything that represents evil. It's everything that represents fallacy and lies and corruption. That is what she represents. Everything that has to do with a religious system that is corrupt. Regardless of the denomination, that is what she represents. Let me tell you something. This is, this is what's happening here. In my house, I'm, I'm the self-proclaimed cook. Okay, I'm like the chef. All right, I, I love cooking for people. And, and not only do I like eating my food, but I like seeing people eat my food. 
All right, it brings me joy. It brings me joy to like cook an awesome meal and just sit there and watch people eat my food. You know, it's awesome. And so one day I, I went to this Argentinian um, carniceria, and let me tell you, the Argentinians know meat. All right, and so and and this is me. Like I go there, and it's just me and my wife, right? Not my kids. My kids don't eat that. And so, however, when I go there, I can't just buy two steaks. I bought like eight steaks. And so I get home, my wife's like, what are you going to do with all this food? I'm like, we're going to eat it. She's like, we can't eat all this food. I'm like, okay, let's invite someone. Let's invite Lily and David, right? Lily is the, she runs the children's ministry, my sister-in-law, and David plays the bass here. And so, um, and she's all right. And so I send them a text. They're like, sure, they love eating my food. And, and so I go to sleep. And the next day, I, I try to get out of work early. And um, I get home around 6 o'clock. My wife is still working. And when I get home, I, I grab the meat. And I put salt on it, I put pepper, I put olive oil, I love putting olive oil on those steaks, and, and then I put my secret rub, which I can't tell you because I'd have to kill you, alright? And then I cook the steaks, but here's the thing, I had had a big lunch, and so after I cook the steaks, I sit down and I just look at everyone at the table. I just want to see their faces. I want to bask in that glory of, of people eating my food, right? But I don't get the reaction that I expect that I usually get. All of a sudden, everybody's like choking on this meat, like, Ugh. You know, and my wife starts screaming at me, and she's like, what did you do to this? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I seasoned it. She goes, why would you season it? And I seasoned it last night. And so what I did to this, like, $40 of, of steak, of delicious steak, is that I ruined it because I stuck my hands in it. I messed it up. Metí la pata, you know? And that is what's happened with religion. That is what's happened with the plan of Christ. You see, Christ came into this world not to establish a denomination, not to establish an institution or a religion. He came here to build a bridge between us and God. He came here to bring us closer to God. And we have put our hands and our traditions and our messed upness into Jesus' plan and we have messed it up. Jesus came so that we would have a relationship with God. We learned that religion binds. Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to give us life. And life to the fullest. You guys think that Christians don't have fun? Jesus came so that we could live amazing lives. So that we could live lives to the fullest. And yet, somehow, throughout time, people and the devil have messed up God's perfect and amazing plan. Check out what Jesus said that he was here to do. Right, right when he started his ministry in Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He didn't, he didn't say this, believe in me and you'll live forever, even though he does say that. But in this part of the Bible, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying that the kingdom of God is right now. He's saying that, you know, we just sang a song. No weeping, no hurt or pain, no sorrow, you hold me now. Right? We're, we're singing that song. Jesus is saying, you know what, you can live that right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is now. You can have the joy and the peace of God and the fullness of God right now in your life. He came to simplify faith. One time, the religious people were trying Jesus because they were always trying Jesus, always trying to get him to mess up, to say something he shouldn't say. And they asked him, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And he comes back with this one. He shut them up. He says, Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. This is the first and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like this one. And it is this, love others as much as you love yourself. 
And all the law of Moses and the books of the prophets are based on these two commandments. He said, hey, I'm coming here to simplify your relationship with God. I'm coming here so that you can have direct access to God. You don't have to go to anyone. You don't have to make any type of sacrifices. You could just say, God, and God is there. That is what I've come to do. And so I'm sure you guys are asking, you know what? How can I realize the kingdom of God right now in my life? How can I turn this religion that I've grown up in, this religion that I've heard of, this religion that has pushed me away that I can't stand? You know what? I'll tell you a story about me. Is that when I was about like 10, 12 years old, like, I really wanted to be a pastor. I, I did. I, I, I preached with my dad in the streets, and, and we, we preached to homeless people. And, and, and since I was a kid, I preached my first message when I was 12 years old in a church like this to old people, not to little kids, to adults. And I, my whole life, I thought I wanted to be a pastor. When I was a teenager, I was totally turned off by the church. I wasn't turned off by God, but, but since, you know, people saw me grow up and working in the church and singing and doing all this stuff, like, they let me in to their world and I was totally turned off. And, and I ran from my calling, from what God had called me, from the gift that God had given me because I was turned off by religion. You know, I was in school. I was studying political science. I graduated with a degree in political science. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I like to talk a lot. And I wanted to talk. And so, and check this out. It's because I allowed religion instead of a relationship to, to be what identified me with God. And so you know how we realize the kingdom of God, how we switch this religion to a relationship. The first thing we need to do is we need to love God. Simple as that. Love God. And we do this in four ways. Fill in your outline. You've got to put God first in your life. You've got to make God the number one thing in your life. And I'm sure right now, if I tell you, there are things in your life that, aren't number, that are number one and it's not God. I don't have to give you a list. You know what it is. What is that thing? that is getting in the way of your relationship with God. Who is that thing? Where is that thing? How does that thing work? What is that thing that's getting in the way of your relationship with God? What is it? Got to get it out of the way and put God first in your life. Mark 6, 31 to 33 says this, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? That sounds like, you know, a TV show, what we see on TV. For all these things... The Gentiles do, the people that don't know God. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You see, a lot of us are going crazy because this is all we're thinking about. We're thinking about what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, what car are we going to drive, what job are we going to have, what title do, are we going to get, what ambition do we have. That's, that's what we're thinking about. And so we can't put God first because all these things, this ambition is getting in the way. But check out what the Bible tells us. But seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things will be added on to you. Put God first and let him worry about everything else. The second thing you need to do is talk to God. You need to pray. You need to pray. What type of a, a loving relationship works without talking? Those of you that have husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends, what type of relationship do you have if you don't communicate with them? What type of relationship does a mother have with her child if she doesn't talk with him? What does a father have with his son and his daughter if they don't communicate? Not a good one. And the same goes with us and God. We can't love God with all of our hearts and put him first if we don't pray and talk to him. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, real simple verse. Pray all the time. Real simple, just pray all the time. The third thing, C, is read your Bible. Guys, your Bible is not that thing that, you know, you used to like, 
put on top of all your bills so they don't fall or to try to get them to go away. No. Your Bible, read it. Read the Word of God. You see, sometimes we feel darkness in our life. Sometimes we feel lost and sad and depressed and hopeless. And check out what the Bible is. It says, your word is a lamp that gives light wherever I walk. So next time you feel sad, you feel down, you feel hopeless, you feel empty, open the word of God and read God's word because it is a lamp. The word of God brings life into our lives. The, the last thing here in, in loving God is come to church. Guys, you've got to come to church. You've got to spend time with God's people. That's the only way you're going to continue to get closer to God is to come to church. And you guys are, I am at church. You know, what are you talking about? Well, some of you haven't been here in a while. Others of you, you're looking around and there's someone that you know that's not here. You know what? Send them a text. Send them a message on Facebook. Aim them. Whatever. Call them. If you're still buying stamps, send them a letter. Make sure that everyone that you know is here. Because that's the only way that they're going to be closer to God. That's the only way that they're going to experience this kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. That's the only way that they're going to get religion out of their life and have a relationship with God. And here's what Hebrews says. Some people have gotten out of the habit of meeting for worship. But we must not do that. We should keep on encouraging each other. Especially since you know that the day of the Lord is coming and is getting closer. Hey guys, it's a fact. The world is messed up, okay? The end of the world is near. And I'm not saying it's going to happen in 100 years, 50 years, 1,000 years, but we know at least it's nearer than when it said it in the Bible. You know what I mean? But, but we look at the signs, and I've talked to you guys in other weeks about how there are signs that stuff is getting messed up. We know that crime is terrible. You know, what's happening with kids and what's happening at homes and what's happening around the world with hunger and disease is messed up. And they're all signs that the Bible tells us that the world is coming to an end. And so we have to be in God's house and have fellowship with God. And now number two, we need to love others. We need to love God and we need to love other people. We need to love them. One of the ways that we love them is to tell people what Jesus has done for you. What has Jesus done in your life? How has Jesus changed your life? Tell people about the love of Christ. Man, that's how we love people, man. If, if, if God has changed your life, you, you'd be greedy. You'd be an evil person if you would not tell someone else about that. And actually, Jesus commands us to do this in Matthew 28. He says, so go and make followers of all people in the world, Matthew 28:19. The second thing that we need to do is we need to give. We need to give back. We are so blessed. Okay, every single person in this room is blessed. There are people in the world that don't have what you have. Even the person that's, man, I'm really messed up. I don't have anything. I'm, you know what? You are blessed. There's people, man, that they're dying for a pair of shoes. There's people that they're dying to have air conditioning in their house. Things that we all take for granted. You are blessed. And so give. Give of what you have. Check out what the Bible says about giving. I showed you, all, I sh- I showed you in all things that you should work as I did and help the weak. I taught you to remember these words, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's more blessing in giving than receiving. You know, and like I said in the beginning, we experienced that as a team, our youth group, when we went to this children's home and we, be, we became friends with all the people that were there. And we were able to give them what we had and they were able to give us what they had. It was an amazing demonstration and I was like floored like the last night just by the power of God and just giving you know, I was in tears. I, there's even pictures of that. 
You know, and not that I want to like show it. I actually told people not to like print them or anything. And, and here's the thing. I was just floored by, by the power of God, just by us putting ourselves in His hands and giving back. We need to give. And the third thing we need to do, we need to forgive. We need to forgive. There's people that have wronged us, people that have hurt us, people that have broken our heart, people that have done things to people that we love and we're holding grudges. And those grudges are ruining us. Those grudges are holding us down. Those grudges are making our heart hard. Look at what Romans 12, 21 says, Don't let evil defeat you, but defeat evil with good. Wow. So that means if someone hurts you, be good to them. It says that it's like putting burning coals on their head. Imagine that. Someone says something mean to you and you just say, you know what, I love you. God bless you. I mean, they're going to they're gonna be like, okay, wh- what do I do now? A soft word turns away wrath. That's what the Bible says. And check this out. I mean, this verse freaks me out. Because forgiving is a hard thing. Forgiving is something that I even struggle with sometimes. Matthew 6 14 through 15 says, If you forgive others for the wrongs that they do, your Father in heaven will forgive you. So if you forgive other people, then God's going to forgive you. So that means we've got to forgive. If we want God's forgiveness in our life, we have to forgive. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow. Hey, you know what? Maybe you're here today, and religion has turned you off. Maybe you're like I was when I was a teenager, and like, you know... You've seen stuff you don't like. You've heard stuff you don't like. You love Jesus. You love the stories that you've heard about Jesus, the stuff you've read about Jesus, the movies you've seen about Jesus, but you don't like the people telling the stories. Or you don't like the places where you grew up. And so your problem is with religion and not with God. Your problem is with religion and not with Jesus. And today I want to invite you to transform this religious oppression and this religious lie, this mystery Babylon that has been lying to you and change that into a relationship with God. And so what I want to do is just invite everyone right now just to bow their heads. And I want to lead you in a prayer. I want to lead you in a prayer where you can transform this this religion into a relationship with God. And if you're here today and, and you don't have a relationship with God, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. It's a real simple prayer and actually everyone in the room is going to pray with you. They're going to encourage you in this prayer, so you're not going to be praying it by yourself. But if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear God, I come to you today, and I say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the mistakes that I've done. I'm sorry for the sins that I've done. Forgive me. I believe that you died for me, Jesus, and that you're alive today. Take my life. Take my heart. Take my pain. I want to be more like you. I want to have a relationship with you. In your name I pray. Amen.